Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. You don't always have to like him. But you have to respect him. The Roy Green Show continues. The Roy Green Show continues on the Chorus Radio Network. So back from a month's vacation that saw me drive from Ontario out to British Columbia. Ontario is a big province. Took me just about three days to reach Manitoba, where gasoline was 88 cents a liter. And then on to Saskatchewan, where it was about 90 cents a liter. Into Alberta, where it should be cheaper, because that's where this stuff is. It got more expensive, carbon tax, and then in British Columbia... It was even more expensive. In B.C., I saw some of the forest fire activity, and that's really so so sad. It's depressing to see that. But there was a lot of tremendous effort being put forward by the uh, firefighting crews. You could see the helicopters dropping the retardants on the uh, on the flames and just going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And a lot of a lot of hard work going on as far as the uh, fighting of the forest fires in B.C. is concerned. Uh, then down into British into the United States, and we'll talk a bit more about that tomorrow because I'm going to have three guests who played a major part in my in my vacation. Just a few minutes of that tomorrow. Now I had an email a few days ago. I received an email a few days ago from Professor Jason Busa. He's the editor of the 2017 Canadian Guideline for Opioids for Non-Chronic Cancer Pain, and you know we've been on this issue very hard. Because so many patients, chronic pain patients, are suffering tremendously because their prescription opioids have been either dramatically reduced, as you've heard, or withheld entirely by doctors who are terrified of the medical colleges in their provinces, terrified they might lose their licenses, terrified their prescription privileges will be reduced, and so the patients are the ones who are suffering. And uh, Professor Busse wanted to let me know about a situation in Hamilton where illicit drugs, illicit opioid drugs, may very well prove to be more of a problem as far as opioid overdoses are concerned than actual prescription opioids. And my sense is they would find that out and just be the case in just about every Canadian city. Anyway, I had the opportunity yesterday to speak with Professor Busse. I want to play that back for you today, that conversation and think about all the people we've spoken to as you listen to my conversation with the professor. Here's how it began. Professor Busa, were you prepared for or were you surprised by the findings in the St. Michael's Hospital report suggesting in the city of Hamilton illicit opioid drugs may be playing a larger role in opioids-related deaths than prescribed opioids, and that because the rate of opioid prescription is not particularly high in the city, while it's reported Hamilton's opioid-related drug rate is quite high when compared to other population centers in Ontario. Did that come as a surprise to you? Uh, it, it, it wasn't a complete surprise, but this is some of the first good data that we have. So we, we've known for some time that the epicenter of the opioid epidemic has been out in British Columbia. We've also known that that is a, a particular environment where illicit uh, fentanyl and carfentanyl have really uh, been become available and that the higher rates of death have always been thought 
to be an influence uh, because of that illicit market. So it wasn't a complete surprise, but this new report does provide important data that gives us additional uh, evidence of that signal. How many other population centers have been studied for opioid-related deaths on a basis of opioid prescriptions written as Hamilton has been? My guess would be, by the way, that you'd have find similar results in most any significant population center in this country. Yeah, I, I haven't seen another report that's come out. I know that there's, uh, you know, efforts are underway to try to get better and better data, but but this Ontario data is some of the first I'm aware of that really has looked at the entire population. Shouldn't it have been done prior to the guideline being released? I mean, the guideline has made a really significant change and a negative change in many, many people's lives. And now the information is coming out that it's probably not the prescription opioids, but it's illicit drugs, which is what I suggested to you last time we spoke. Well, I, I, I think it's, it's a very complex issue, and there's, there's a number of factors that are probably contributing to some of the um, issues that we see around uh, overdoses and uh, addiction and fatal overdoses. So we, we do still know that uh, Canada is the second largest per capita consumer of opioids in the world. Uh, we, we prescribe at a much higher rate than, than most other places. Uh, only the U.S. prescribes a greater amount of opioids. Um, and there are some important harms that we know are associated directly with prescription opioids. Um, we do know that there is uh, approximately a 5% risk of becoming addicted. Uh, we know that physical dependence will develop in uh, anyone that's involved in long-term opioid therapy. And there, there is a, a small but important risk of experiencing an overdose, even a fatal overdose, from prescription opioids. We also know that there are a small but important benefits that are derived from use of opioids for chronic pain. And we understand more now than we did some of the risk factors that are associated with putting people at an elevated risk of, of either developing an addiction or perhaps an unintended overdose. And the real challenge for clinicians right now is to avoid prescribing opioids for patients who are likely to experience greater harm than benefit, but also to offer a trial of opioids for select patients who have failed non-opioid therapy and may derive important benefits. Um, that being said, I, I would agree very much that clinicians are under pressure right now to avoid prescribing opioids. They're terrified. Yeah, and, and because of this, there is a risk that uh, prior excessive use of opioids will be superseded by an overzealous reluctance to use opioids. But so aren't, you, aren't, you the, aren't you in the committee and the group that formed these guidelines? Are you not the architects of that? Well, we... The, the, the are you not in other words, are you not responsible for doctors being terrified, I'll use that word again, to provide their patients with what they need? And by the way, if Canada is the second largest as far as... Um, opioid prescriptions is concerned, country in the world, isn't that a better thing than, uh, isn't that better than, than, than worse? Because that means that our patients are getting what they require. People who are in chronic pain, chronic agony, 24 hours a day, require help. And if the opioids provide them the help they require, what's wrong with giving them what they need? Well, I mean, you right. talk about, you talk about a, a minimal risk. A minimal risk is worth taking when you have somebody considering, actively considering suicide, based on the pain levels they have, and then when the doctors don't give them what they require and what they were given previously or prescribed previously by that same doctor in consultation, that really is causing tremendous harm to patients I've spoken to, and many of them 
Professor Busa, I shouldn't say many, but some I've spoken to have suggested they are going to launch lawsuits, wrongful death lawsuits, uh, for family members if those family members commit suicide. This is going to, this has the potential to become very, very nasty. Yes, and, and we certainly knew going into this that this was a tremendously polarizing issue. Um, for that reason, we only made recommendations where we had evidence to guide that process. So the recommendations that were made are not based on individual opinions. Uh, this is based on systematic reviews of the literature. We've provided the evidence behind all of the recommendations. And we've made strong recommendations only where we had sufficient evidence to do so. Um, and, and even the most recent report that came out from the Ontario Drug Policy Research Network, uh, they did report on the number of opioid-related uh, deaths that have occurred in Ontario. 867 and, in 2016. Uh, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm not sure if the total numbers are in for 2016, but, but, but perhaps they are. Uh, but they weren't able to tell you you know, how many are due to prescription opioids, how many due to diversion of prescription opioids, and how many due to illicit. So this is a level of detail that is extremely difficult to get. Even when I speak to coroners, it, it's a tremendous challenge to get that level of granularity. So we do need to do as good a job as we can to try to get that level of detail. I agree it's important. But we, we, we don't have a way to break it down in many cases yet. So why was it uh, necessary then to change the guidelines that were put in place in 2010, change them in the manner that you did for 2017, when you don't have the information or it's difficult to comprise the information that, uh, that resulted in the guideline recommendations for this year? Why make the change at all until you have the evidence, until you have all of the information that you require? Because you're affecting literally millions of people, or more than a million in Canada and in the United States. The equivalency, I've heard some 111 million people are on chronic pain, uh, living with chronic pain issues. So, so, so why change the, the recommendations at all? Right. Well, when clinicians are looking to guidelines for information, those guidelines are most helpful if they, if they reflect all of the most current best evidence. The guidelines that were put out in 2010 uh, were not able to take advantage of the you know, seven or eight years of evidence that's accumulated since they were published. Yeah. And so it's standard practice uh, about every five years, and certainly the National Pain Center was under contract to do an update uh, every five years of the guidelines. So the effort to update was in large part a reflection of the need to include all of the additional evidence that's come out since 2010. So there's part one of my interview with Dr. Jason Busa, Professor Jason Busa. He's not a medical doctor, he's a chiropractor, but uh, and the editor of the Canadian Pain Guide, the Opioids Guide. Uh, Professor Busa saying in part 5% risk of addiction, 5%, very low. Small but important benefits. I'd argue that the benefits are high and significant to pain patients, but he also admits that doctors are under pressure and uh, significantly under pressure and more so than they should be. I developed that point a little further with the professor in the interview. You'll hear that when we come back. Compassionate, caring, and cuddly. This is the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. (laughs) 
Gasoline prices uh, climbing dramatically across the country on this Labor Day weekend. Why? We'll talk to uh, Dan McTague of GasBuddy.com before the end of the hour. Back to the interview I recorded yesterday with Professor Jason Busa, the editor of the Canadian Pain Guide, the Opioids Pain Guide for 2017. Have a listen how the rest of the conversation went. In the guidelines, you report about 5% of prescription opioids are diverted to the street. If I understand that correctly, I imagine that 5% of prescription opioids, when the prescription is filled, are diverted to street dealers. Uh, First of all, is that correct? And then secondly, how do you arrive at the 5% number? Uh, So the 5% number was derived from population surveys, actually asking individuals uh, in Canada, so not not necessarily drug dealers, uh, have they ever used a prescription opioid that was not prescribed to them for non-medicinal purposes? And approximately 5% of respondents indicated that they had. I spoke with Dr. David Gerling last uh, November. He was on your steering committee. And uh, I asked him about withdrawal from opioids for chronic pain patients. And he told me at the time that cutting patients off their opioids is only going to make things worse, that if a patient is going to be um, separated from opioid medication, it should be done extremely gradually. That's not what's happening in many cases. We have doctors telling patients, uh, we're not going to prescribe you opioids any longer because I will not and I've had more than one patient tell me this, that the doctor said, I will not endanger my medical license. We've also been told that there have been doctors who've had, and maybe in the province of Ontario, certainly I've heard in Nova Scotia, doctors who've had their prescribing uh, opportunities or, or, or rights restricted by uh, colleges because they've been unhappy with the amounts of opioids they prescribed. So do you have, have you created a fearful physician population in Canada? Well, I I think that this climate has been coming before the guidelines came out. And certainly there was the early adoption of the CDC guidelines back in March 2016, uh, which which I've I've heard, uh, you know, has been used by some of the colleges to promote some of these more restrictive standards. But I I think it's important to be very clear about what what we have recommended based on the evidence. And really what we've done is we have made a recommendation that for patients currently using high doses that they should try and decrease their dose. But I agree entirely with Dr. Yerling, and we've stated this in the guideline, that there are risks to decreasing the dose, including opioid withdrawal, which, which can be enormously problematic for some individuals. And there is the potential that if denied their prescription opioids, some individuals could even end up going to the street in order to secure illicit opioids, and that is very likely to leave them in a, a worse position than they started. Let me, read you a, let me read you a letter I received from Dr. Owen Williamson. He's the yeah. president of the Pain Management Physicians of BC Society. He writes, Dear Mr. Green, I write as the president of the Pain Medicine Physicians of BC Society. In response to a comment by Dr. Mary Redmond on your show yesterday, she's a pain management doctor in Ottawa, regarding my negotiations with the College of Physicians and Surgeons of BC regarding their board policy on the prescribing of drugs with potential for misuse and abuse. They have steadfastly refused to consult with pain experts either before or since they implemented their policy, despite advice from our society and patient advocacy groups that their policy is harming people with chronic pain. They have refused to significantly revise or rescind their policy. Their policy is neither consistent with the CDC guideline nor the 2017 Canadian guideline. We believe the CPSBC is operating outside its mandate 
failing to observe its core values and is not practicing evidence-informed health policy. I'm happy to provide you with more detailed information and speak with you on or off air. I spoke on air with Dr. Williamson. If this is going on, and I have no reason to doubt Dr. Williamson, and I doubt you will either, is it not the responsibility then of your group to stand up and publicly follow up on this guide and and recommend publicly, nationally, to colleges across this country and to doctors to listen to what you've been saying, to in fact not uh, withhold opioids from patients or, or take them away extremely quickly and to wean people on a schedule that really works for the patient? Is it not your responsibility as a group to stand up and follow up on the guidelines? Well, we certainly are attempting to do that. So we've made a, a large number of presentations. We've given a large number of uh, talks to government officials. Uh, we've certainly written about some of the college standards that we feel have the potential to be problematic, and we've published those opinions. Uh, and we've stated very clearly in our guideline, exactly as Dr. Williamson has stated, that we are not making a strong recommendation that individuals using high dose need to come down or need to come off. It's not in the guideline. He's completely accurate in that. I'll also state I've had a lot of discussions with Dr. Williamson and with his group. Uh, We invited him to participate in the guideline. He was unable to make the time to do so, but he did send out a representative from his group that I feel made an important contribution uh, to the work that we did. So I agree with the comments that uh, that he makes. I agree with your concerns that uh, as authors of the guideline, we do bear a responsibility to do whatever we can to ensure that the recommendations we've made are appropriately interpreted and appropriately implemented. Uh, and we're certainly committed to uh, to continuing those efforts. Yeah, I would suggest that you uh, maybe contact media. You, you've contacted me, and I appreciate that, but I think your group should be contacting media across the country and making this point so that doctors don't miss it. So we have uh, doctors who are afraid, as we've heard many times, to uh, prescribe the opioid medications to their patients. I also spoke uh, in November of last year with uh, Dr. David Gerling, who's one of the leading physicians, who is a member of this panel for the guidelines, one of the leading physicians in Canada on the issue of opioids and prescribing them. Here's what he said what doctors should and shouldn't do. I think this is an important point to make, and if there's any doctor listening to this program or any patient listening, I can't say this clearly enough. We have a, a crisis of addiction in Canada and in the U.S., but we're not gonna fix that by destabilizing people on pain medicine and by cutting them off, we're going to make it worse, right? So if I have a patient on high doses of opioids for chronic pain, which is generally not a good idea, um, but they're out there and they're out there in large numbers. If we start cutting their their doses, you know, in a hurry, um, uh, they're going to get sick. Uh, They're going to go into withdrawal uh, and they might well seek whatever relief they can get, including buying stuff on the street. And that's going to make things worse. Last part with Professor Busa coming up. He's like a superhero without the costume. This is the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Over a million people in this country are struggling, fighting daily with chronic pain. Pain which uh, makes their lives extremely difficult to live with. Pain which is driving many of them to think about suicide, and you've heard them say that on this program. 
Two of the women who have said that they are considering suicide will be joining us tomorrow. One from Atlantic Canada, one from British Columbia. And they are listening to the conversation as I'm playing it back now with Professor Busa, who's the editor of the guidelines, the opioid guidelines for 2017. We will also have two more individuals in the panel tomorrow, one from Alberta, one from Ontario, and both of them speak out very strongly for patients of pain. So have a listen to the rest of the conversation with Professor Busse, Professor Jason Busse, and then I'm going to read you one email that I received, just one, that I received from somebody in British Columbia. Have a listen. I'm going to be speaking tomorrow with Barry Ulmer, the Executive Director of the Chronic Pain Association of Canada. Mr. Ulmer's association was also asked for its input into the guidelines, but from what I now understand, while the Chronic Pain Association of Canada provided input you asked for, their input was not included in the guideline. Is that so? And if so, why? Uh, no, we, we did receive uh, the, uh, the comments from, uh, from his group, as well as comments from over 500 other groups. Uh, these were all considered, synthesized, they were discussed with the steering committee, uh, and we, we certainly did consider all that information we received uh, in the final version of the guidelines. Did you include anything from the Chronic Pain Association's recommendations? Uh, I, I, we, I'm going to have to go back to that specific letter. I, I recall that we reviewed it, but we reviewed so much material that I can't tell you off the top of my head what aspects of it. But we, we did feel that the final guidelines addressed the concerns. I can't tell you if there were particular components that we inserted into the guideline uh, based on that one letter. All right, Professor Busse, if I understand correctly, members of the patient advisory panel have now also washed their hands of the finished product, the official guideline. Is that true? Uh, I, I, I'm not aware of that. We had, um, we had uh, 16 individuals that worked with us for a two-year period. Uh, we gained uh, great uh, insight from their input and their involvement. Uh, we, we were extremely committed to including the voice of patients living with chronic pain. When we went to publish the final guideline, we made a commitment only to publish the names of individuals that provided us with written consent. Uh, I reached out to all of the patient advisory committee members, all 16. Out of those 16, there were three uh, that indicated to me that they were uncomfortable having their name publicly released. Uh, I certainly respected that, and so we've published the names of 13 of the members that provided me with written consent, uh, but I didn't follow up with members to, to you know, the three members that were uncomfortable to ask uh, uh, the reasons behind their other decision. A very prominent physician provided me with some information that I'm going to share with you now and ask you to comment on. I will not name him because I haven't received his permission to do so. But he has uh, communicated to me that doctors are communicating among themselves about pain patients increasingly committing suicide, patients whose opioid meds are being significantly reduced or withheld, again, by doctors who may be intimidated by the guidelines. Have you heard anything at all about doctors among themselves talking about increased numbers of patients, pain patients, committing suicide? Well, I did, uh, I did speak with Maria Hudsmith, who's the, um, who, who runs Pain BC out in British Columbia, and she had advised me that she had heard from some of her members, some of the chronic pain patients they worked with, that because of uh, some individuals' experiences with being cut off or drastic reductions, that they, they had looked to the street to gain illicit opioids. And, and of course, when you do that, I think the risk of suffering 
uh, an overdose, even a fatal overdose, because you don't know what you're getting, is definitely there. So I, I don't know of, of direct stories, but I certainly acknowledge it's a risk. And again, it's, it's one of the reasons that we put a very, very specific remark associated with our recommendation for tapering patients. Um, and that remark, if I could just read it exactly, states, states this. It states, some patients may have a substantial increase in pain or decrease in function that persists for more than one month after a small dose reduction. Tapering may be paused or potentially abandoned in such patients. So we, we do provide that flexibility. Uh, and because we've made a, only a weak recommendation about tapering, which reflects the evidence, it is entirely reasonable for a patient informed by their physician of the benefits and risks and some of the associated uncertainty to choose to try to lower their dose. But another might choose to leave well enough alone. So I believe if our guideline recommendation is appropriately interpreted, it is going to guard against the kind of risk that you're talking about. All right. So what is happening then clearly across this country should not be happening. And that is doctors either completely and very quickly uh, withholding opioid prescriptions from their patients or not tapering them off, but rushing them off their prescription dosage. That should not be happening. Yes, that, that, that is not an appropriate interpretation of the recommendations that we've All made. Right. Now, I, just I to go back to the last question that I raised about doctors communicating among themselves about pain patients increasingly committing suicide. This wasn't about pain patients going to the street dealers and overdosing with product from them. This was about doctors communicating among themselves about pain patients committing suicide because their prescriptions had been significantly reduced or withheld. That's what the issue is. Yes, but, but again, as per our recommendation, if it was followed appropriately, that situation should not occur. We, we make no recommendations for aggressive tapering. We make no recommendations for cutting patients off their opioids. And our one recommendation that does talk about tapering patients at high doses, it's a weak recommendation only. It's a values and preference decision that should involve the patient. And we make an explicit remark associated with that that if patients are running into problems with the tapering, it is perfectly reasonable to either pause that taper or perhaps to abandon it altogether. So if that recommendation is appropriately applied, the kind of scenarios that you're talking about will not result. Well, we have uh, many, many doctors, maybe the majority of doctors, it appears certainly the majority of doctors, misinterpreting what the guidelines are suggesting then. I'm going to leave you with one, uh, with one comment that I received from a senior emergency department physician. He writes, as opioids are more available, there's been a rise in opioid addiction in the general population, but that does not mean in deaths. But still, these are not reasons to deprive us and our patients of a great therapeutic tool for a terrible condition, acute and chronic pain, which is one of the leading causes to visit an emergency department in the Western world. If we should restrict or ban any substance that causes addiction and extremely common and serious health consequences, including numerous deaths down the road, why don't we start with tobacco and alcohol? It just does not make common clinical sense. I'm glad that some people are starting to speak out and that some hidden agendas are finally coming to light. That is from a senior emergency department physician who I believe is going to go public and, uh, and join me on the air. That seems to be, if I, can come, if, I, if I can find a consensus view 
but I've heard from doctors, not the patients now, but from doctors, that, that those few lines from that email would, I think, mirror the consensus view that I've heard, Professor Busser. Yes, exactly. I, again, the, the current evidence that we have is that there are a number of alternatives to opioids that for many individuals will show similar benefits, but without the risks of uh, addiction and overdose. But it is certainly the case that there is evidence that some patients will achieve important benefits for their chronic pain with opioids. And as I've noted, the real challenge is for uh, patients that are at high risk of adverse outcomes uh, to be uh, guided away from an opioid because they're likely to experience more harm than benefit, but also to ensure that clinicians are offering a trial of opioids for patients who have failed non-opioid therapy and may derive important benefit. So there's uh, Professor Jason Boucher, as I recorded the interview yesterday. Sometimes he sounded more like um, former health minister Philpott, but more eloquent than the minister. But he continues to stress that patients should not be separated entirely from their opioids. The doctor should not be doing that. And if the patient is not comfortable with the tapering, then the tapering should stop. Quick email I'm going to read to you. Hi, Roy. I'm sure there's no way to count the exact percentage of chronic pain patients who get cut off of their opioid pain meds. They're 100% necessary opioid pain meds and wind up having to turn to street-obtained drugs to control their pain so they can live lives remotely worth living. But the Vancouver news media sure have no trouble finding people using illegally obtained opioids to treat their very real pain. I'm one of them. And this is a terrible way to have to control pain, as with an illegal source, the real clean pharmaceutical source can dry up without warning, so the self-medicating patient then has no choice but to use powders of unknown strengths and purities, and then, of course, ends up playing Russian roulette with his or her own life. Chronic pain is hell enough without sending pain sufferers into the mean streets to buy drugs from people who don't care about their health, as much as a licensed practitioner presumably would, to buy drugs of unknown origin which could cause a lot of harm and even unplanned death. My own back pain is so intense sometimes that I'm otherwise clean-living, functional, a 48-year-old, am sent into the street for my own pain management. So needless to say, the official system in place today disgusts me more than the illegal street dealers that I've had no choice but to deal with who usually home deliver by car, so thank goodness I've not been reduced to actually asking disheveled people in the dirty alleys to help with my very real pain. That's from Kathy in Vancouver. She may join us tomorrow. When we come back, what the heck is going on with gasoline prices? And who's responsible? Dan McTague of GasBuddy.com will explain.